Welcome to the Crazy Science Report, Episode 5. I'm Tanya Faber, Senior Science Reporter at the Sunday Times and Times Live. Today we'll be talking about vaccinology in the context of COVID-19, and also a deadly disease that struck Africa more than 100 years ago. First, we'll look at a disastrous television interview that has fueled myths of how the vaccine is being developed. And then in part two, we'll look at some highly inhumane research that was carried out in the early 19th century. Thanks for joining me. It's a story that starts at the end. It's October 2020. The world is holding its collective breath for a vaccine against COVID-19. The Northern Hemisphere is heading into its winter months, a bleak reminder that almost a year has passed since a virus from a wet market in Wuhan, China, began to curl its claws around one country after another. Some countries are now in their second wave. France has just had an unenviable record of over 40,000 new infections in a single day. Spain is back to a state of emergency. America is a disaster zone with over 200,000 deaths and a recent daily high of 83,000 infections in 24 hours. To date, the official death toll globally is over a million. The official number of infections is pegged at almost 43 million, though it's likely much higher. In the Southern Hemisphere, spring will soon give way to the high heat of summer, and scientists and medical personnel are literally pleading with everyone to forgo the festive fun to prevent a resurgence. The reality is that the vaccine as a panacea is a long way off, even when safety and efficacy have been established beyond doubt, manufacture and distribution also take time. But let's back up a little. Let's go back to early April this year and talk about a train smash of an interview that has potentially sown the seeds for a vaccine rollout disaster in some parts of the world. Without buy-in from citizens, it's very difficult for any government to scale up a vaccine program. We're talking here about an interview on French television that was misleading and destructive and fed into the collective memory of European brutality in Africa. Si je peux être provocateur, est-ce qu'on devrait pas faire cette étude en Afrique où il y a pas de It was a debate on a French TV channel and it turned sour when Jean-Paul Mira, head of an intensive care unit at a Parisian hospital, said on live television, if I can be provocative, shouldn't we be doing the study in Africa where there are no masks, no treatments and no resuscitation? He then made it worse by adding, a bit like it is done elsewhere for some studies on AIDS. In prostitutes, we try things because we know that they are highly exposed and that they do not protect themselves. So in less than 20 seconds, he had managed to paint the whole of Africa as a place devoid of any medical care or knowledge, had made glib references to AIDS studies, and callously implied that sex workers do not take care of themselves at all. Comments that were baseless, irresponsible, and worst of all derogatory still haunt the vaccine zeitgeist seven months later. From there, it was an easy step for some very public figures to amplify the justifiable anger that the comments caused. For example, beloved former footballer Didier Drogba called the comments deeply racist. He added, Do not take African people as human guinea pigs. It's absolutely disgusting. And it was that sentiment that began to travel around the world the fastest, that Europeans were calling to test vaccines on Africans who were more likely to be exposed to the virus in a milieu of poor medical prevention and treatment. With trials as far afield as England, Australia, Brazil, America, China, Russia and several other countries, it clearly was and is a complete falsehood that Africa was being used as a guinea pig continent. But that type of inflammatory statement 
hits directly at a very real historical wound and is almost impossible to dispel. That this wholly unfounded rumor was traveling around the world was a fire that scientists now had to try and stamp out. Professor Shabir Madi from Witts University, who is heading up the trials in South Africa, said African countries should actually be clamoring to be part of vaccine trials so that we have equal access when the vaccines are finally rolled out. He pointed out that only 2% of clinical trials happen in Africa, yet the continent has 17% of the world's population and thus often misses out on early rollout of life-saving preventions. Dr. Machidiso Mweti, the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Africa, said participation in trials would prevent a repetition of Africa being last to benefit from scientific developments. She said, this disease will be circulating until there is a vaccine. I commend South Africa for participating, and we want to encourage other African member states to join. When we finally have an effective vaccine, equity must be a central focus, because too often, Africa is left at the back of the queue. Vaccine development does not simply happen in a vacuum. Ethical concerns shift, political forces come to bear on their production, and of course science itself is a body of knowledge that keeps changing shape. But one likes to think that despite these forces at play, there is an undertone of humanity, a sense of working towards the greater good. In fact, the very term herd immunity has that idea knitted into it, that we're a group from the same species all in this together, and any line of protection created within the herd goes towards preventing its transmission to others. But what happens when the notion of the herd does not extend to every member of the human race? What happens when a scientist, rich in knowledge but poor in wisdom, carries out work that is lauded by the world and yet causes utter destruction for a group of people who have no power to resist it? After the break, we will go back 115 years in time and look at a genuine case of Africa being used for vaccine trials in a way that should be described as nothing less than monstrous. Stay tuned, and when we're back, we'll talk about Nobel Prize winner Robert Koch and the despicable nature of the so-called science he practiced in Africa more than a century ago. Uyaz Umzanzi Salaville is filled with flavor. But you know that Or who secured the latest bag? Or just who's dripping with sauce? And who's adding the spice? Because if it's hot, then it's definitely in the cheese pot. In 1906, a German scientist named Heinrich Hermann Robert Koch boarded a steamship off the English coast with his wife and several assistants. With his neatly trimmed beard and moustache, he wore steel-grimmed spectacles and a black top hat, a tailored suit and a bow tie. In the world of science and medicine, he was considered a genius. Just the previous year, he had walked off with a highly coveted Nobel Prize in that field after major breakthroughs in our understanding of tuberculosis. He had also carried out brilliant research on cholera and anthrax, and to this day is considered the founder of modern microbiology. He was, after all, the first scientist to establish a causative link between a microbe and a disease, and this changed the game of the human endeavor to fight disease. 
When he set off for East Africa on that day in 1906, it was not the first time he was traveling to Africa. In the 1890s, Koch was brought to South Africa by the governor of the Cape to investigate and find a cure for a plague that was affecting cattle. The epidemic affected most of Southern Africa, but was particularly virulent in the then Transvaal and the northern parts of the Cape Colony, and was causing socio-economic havoc as a result. That disease was the Rinderpest, and by 1897, Koch had discovered a vaccine that could prevent it. Now we're back to 1906, with Koch on a steamship making his way to East Africa, where a horrific disease was striking at humans. Trypanosomiasis, or sleeping sickness, is spread to humans from the tsetse fly. As described by American historian Daniel Hedrick, an infected person has joint pain, headaches and a fever, and then becomes drowsy. The infection also causes a swelling of the lymph nodes at the back of the neck. Once the pathogen crosses the blood-brain barrier and infects the central nervous system, the patient becomes lethargic or insane then goes into a coma, and finally dies. So Koch arrived in East Africa ready to tackle this horrible disease. Some say he represents a genuine desire on humanitarian grounds to stamp it out, but others say that in the colonial context, European powers were more concerned that their colonial workforce, and thus their financial gains, were under threat. Either way, according to a researcher named Wolfgang Eckhart, Victory over sleeping sickness could not be achieved in Berlin because animals were thought to be unsuitable for therapeutic lab research for this particular disease. As a result, he writes, the colonies themselves were chosen as laboratories and the patients with sleeping sickness became the objects of research. In other words, drugs that were considered to have potential value would be tested on thousands of people in Africa with none of the ethical procedures in place that we expect today from any clinical trials. Koch quickly set up the Bogula Sleeping Sickness Research Camp, and it was here that every day around a thousand people were given atoxyl to see what it would do. If you consider that atoxyl contains arsenic, you can understand the implications of this. Despite its name, which means non-toxic, atoxyl was very dangerous, for it caused partial or total blindness in up to 20% of patients. Also, the minimum dose needed to rid the patient of illness was almost the same as the maximum dose that patients could tolerate without being poisoned to death. There is little record of how the patients were recruited, if they were informed of the possible risks of taking atoxyl, and if they even had a say in being part of this big experiment. Koch then lobbied with the government back home in Germany that more such research camps should be set up, and that is exactly what happened. Edna Bonham, a historian recently writing about Koch's work in East Africa, says that by the time Koch left the continent in October 1907, three sleeping sickness research camps had been set up in German East Africa. The imagery of these camps, which Koch himself called concentration camps, says a lot about the colonial context, the lack of medical ethics, and the notion of a human laboratory. Pittsburgh University historian Mari Wabel describes how subjects had to wear wooden ID tags around their necks and constantly had blood and other material drawn from their bodies while the German researchers attempted to collect data on the disease. And so, the extent to which Koch's research contributed to the understanding of the disease and how to tackle it becomes irrelevant. Imagine in today's context, 
justifying such a wholesale use of human beings for research by arguing that it's all in the name of science, medicine, health and the greater good. Bonham, in her reflection of Koch's work in the current context of COVID-19, puts it perfectly in her opinion piece for Al Jazeera. Koch was a brilliant scientist, she writes, pointing out that we don't really know whether Koch's motivations were humanitarian or not. But nevertheless, the methods he used to try find a cure and the conditions he set up to contain the disease were rooted in colonial hierarchies, and we know how brutal those hierarchies were. In the midst of COVID-19, we need to remember that vaccine development is always rooted in the thinking of the time, and while the sleeping sickness experiments were inhumane on every level, there is no evidence at all that that same approach of a century ago is playing out now. And let's hope that by the time a COVID-19 vaccine is actually rolled out, that people have been able to dispel the myth that it was only being trialed in Africa. On the contrary, this might be the first time that the world has acted in such unison and so quickly to try combat a disease that is ravaging so many countries. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to a moment in the near future when I'm recording a podcast about a brilliant new vaccine that is being rolled out and which can inoculate all of us against COVID-19. You're listening to Tanya Faber from the Crazy Science Report. Until next time, take care.